Well, listeners, today, this is an exciting day. We have Professor Karen Kahn's joining us, who's truly an international sports physician, well-known throughout the world. We are just honored to bring uh, Professor Kahn onto the program today. This is Pain Refrain. He was educated in Australia, studied medicine, medical research in Melbourne, awarded a PhD in medicine, and his PhD work was really on mechanical loading of the musculoskeletal system. And from that, he has really pushed that model throughout his career. He is a voice of reason and a voice that calls out the overutilization of many of the things we see in musculoskeletal care. He is also one of those great human beings that really brings people together and brings voices together to make a difference in, in patients' lives. So it's great to have you on, Karim, and I really am honored to have you here. Could you just give us a brief uh, update of, of kind of what your role is in the sphere of healthcare today? Hi, Tim. Great to be on the call today. And one role that I spend a lot of time on is the editorship of the British Journal of Sports Medicine. We call it BJSM to make it easier. And we have an active social media, which I hope people are following, Twitter at BJSM underscore BMJ, Facebook, YouTube videos. And I make that point straight away because it is a community and we're trying to communicate with patients and with clinicians. And I think the word journal has an unfortunate sort of old-fashioned, boring black and white pages connotation. So I want to make the point that the BJSM is into health care and health promotion and trying to be part of the discussion to help patients and listeners get to good healthcare decisions. So I spend a lot of time in that role. Well, I must say, when I saw you speak uh, just this past year in October at the AAOMPT conference, I was immediately, you know, I've read your work, I've been followed you at, in uh, on social media, and been inspired by your presence there. But to hear you in person, and just your authentic voice, you're calling out against just really the over-medicalization and the harms we're doing to to society. It, it was, I felt like I had met a, a kindred spirit, if you will. So would you mind talking a little bit about kind of some of the, what you see in musculoskeletal pain, some of the over-utilization that occurs in that realm? Tim, we all grew up wanting to treat patients and make them better. And I think I thought it was going to be a lot more straightforward as a sports medicine physician who worked very closely with physios and fortunate to be in a clinic with an allied healthcare team. But the more recent years I've been you know, disappointed, I think is a reasonable word, about the misinformation coming out for patients and really lies from people in prominent positions uh, speaking at conferences in keynotes when they have clear conflict of interest and it just seems like they don't have conscience, to be honest. And obviously, I'm not going to name any names. And I think this will resonate with some listeners. One concrete example I'm going to begin with is platelet-rich plasma, PRP, which will be familiar to many people because many famous athletes have tried it. And I'm fine about people looking for research innovations and uh, being honest with patients and saying this is an experiment. But I am frustrated when a person gets up at a major international meeting with 1,500 people in the audience and they give a very, very biased perspective suggesting that PRP has much more capacity than it does, not articulating any of the limitations of what they're talking about and having 
a well-known commercial interest in that their commercial interest and sponsorship by the company is spelled out in many places, but the person doesn't mention it at the time. To me, that's dishonest. Well, I mean, it, we see that across the industry and in, in uh, spinal fusion, spinal implants, PRP, and and as you mentioned in PRP, as a clinician, patients see these slick advertisements, whether it be on websites, whether it be print advertisement, now on TV, about this miracle cure that if we do this, and yet they haven't even tried what we know works, that thing called uh, exercise. And h- how do you respond to that as a, uh, as people come in? Because you probably get that in your practice. Yeah. And to be honest, um, on my side, in the last few years with the increased work at the journal in my university professor job at uh, University of British Columbia in research leadership, I've stopped being in the clinic. But obviously, I had 20 years experience in the clinic and I work with clinicians and speak to clinicians all the time. So, um, And I give advice to patients um, in this sort of forum. So I think the patients have to be more cognizant of the industry bias and really the dishonesty and and not trust advertisements, not trust a doctor in a white coat on an advertisement and not trust written content, unfortunately. And so I can see this is very, very confusing for those not trained as health professionals and not having courses in health literacy, which is why I think it's really unfortunate that people who were trusted have abused that trust are doing things like publishing in disreputable journals, which smears the whole field. So I'll spell that out because there are respectable journals and that's what people grew up with and that's what the public's perception will be to understand that there are journals and they think that this is a credible process. But now there are these predator journals and what they do is they'll just take any paper that anyone will send and they'll just publish it online for a fee. And so they'll make, say, $2,000 for publishing something without any review process and then those people who are trying to promote a product will then get into a what can even be a predator conference like a fake conference and then Mm -hmm. talk about this product that they're trying to sell commercially that doesn't have evidence but then they'll cite a very poor quality paper without spelling it out so for the uninitiated it's like well here's a, a health professional here's research quotation marks, it's been published in a journal, quotation marks, and so they're vulnerable to accepting what they're being told, and to me that's tragic. And before I close on that, obviously some open journals are fine, and the BJSM has an open journal, so the journals where people pay to publish papers can be okay, but there are this large group of predator journals where they mix the names of reputable journals and it's a poison and it's unfortunately there isn't some sort of legal block to those journals and those predator conferences. Karim, I really appreciate that perspective. And in a lot of ways, it, it echoes, we had Anna Lemke on the show, um, the author of Drug Dealer MD. And, and she gave, in her book as well as on the podcast, she gave a very unsettling history of how at many of the medical conferences, you know, there were obviously individuals from the pharmaceutical companies that were presenting information that was, um, to say the least, challenged, you you, you know, and and didn't have quite the background that it should have to be at that level of of conference. I guess my question to you, Karim, is for those of us, um, whether it's whether it's patients trying to find good, reliable information or whether it's um, PTs or MDs trying to know what sources to trust, um, with your experience 
um, and knowledge across the industry. How, how, how do individuals know which journals um, are reputable and are, are there databases that we might be able to send our listeners so maybe they can get more reliable information and avoid some of, like you said, those predatory um, articles, journals, and sources? There's a list called Beals List, B-E-A-L-L-S, and it was a academic site listing predator journals and uh, conferences, which really would be quite a busy job to keep up because of the rapid proliferation of those. But uh, that site has gone down um, from early 2017. So it is very difficult. Um, but I think if people think they're going to a conference, realise that the conference may be um, not reputable, then I think they should follow things like social media of people they trust in their space, trustworthy people in back pain, trustworthy people in sports medicine. And the BJSM has actually given a stamp of approval now to conferences, um, which we wish we didn't have to do, but clearly there's an important role for that. So we have that criteria and then people get a BJSM approved tag, but we don't take any money for that. It's not a commercial thing like, um, in the food industry, there were people giving stamps of approval for heart health, but then you had to pay for that. But we're just trying to do it as a community service. So I think it's about talking to people who um, are in the field. So if someone's in a small practice and, you know, isolated part, use your email connections, talk to people, don't just sign up because the website looks quite slick. I was surprised how slick one of them was recently. They used to be a bit obviously not great, but I saw one where if I wasn't in my senior position in my work, I would have thought it sounded reputable for sure. This is going to be shocking for some listeners, but these websites actually say that they've got confirmed keynote speakers of people when they haven't contacted that person and the person isn't going to the conference. So I followed up with two separate conferences with people where it's like, Greg, you know, Greg White wouldn't be mentioning that. Greg White's a fantastic exercise physiologist and world famous person in the field. I was really surprised to see his name on a sports medicine conference in Dubai. And then I contacted him and he said, I know nothing about this at all and I'm not going to that conference. And then a different conference is a, a conference coming up in Japan. And I saw again a similar colleague's name and, uh, by now, I was experienced. I said, look, I suspect you don't know anything about this. And my colleague said, that's correct. I'm not going to the conference. I don't know anything about the conference. And they did it to me at a previous time. So there are sites putting people's names as, as confirmed keynote speakers, which is one of the big criteria that we use for attending conferences. And those people don't know about it. And they also say that they're on the scientific committee. So you know, it's terrible that there isn't some way of suing, you know, people who do this. Um, yeah, thank you. That gives light to sort of the severity of the situation because, I mean, that gets to a huge source. If, if we can't trust the information we're getting, it's going to be really hard to have an intelligible conversation going forward. I don't, I don't want to make a huge shift of gears here, Karen, but I, I do want to bring up this your wonderful research in the past on, on mechanotransduction, because I think that it brings up a point that Tim and I have really been trying to get at over the past number of episodes here on the show, in that, like you said, we, all this false information and all these quick fixes and all these things that are advertised and these folks that are misled to believe that that this is really the solution is to, is to get injected and is to take these pills and really all of those things are trying to get after changes, and I believe you might have said this right in your BJSM article, at the cellular level, and what we know is there's a far simpler, safer way to do that, and that is simply to load the tissue. And I think that if, if we can get that understanding out there to the greater community that 
before we go and, and, and put needles in people and, and open folks up that perhaps trying to get after an evidence-based method of, of moving them forward by simply creating mechanical load and allowing the sequela of that to sort of spur on the rehabilitation process. Do you mind, I, I would just hate for us to have a talk and not have you give a little bit of insight onto what that concept is and sort of how it drives some of your thoughts about maybe the first entry point for rehab and trying to get someone feeling better that is experiencing pain. Well, you've done a great summary. I was listening to that and thinking, gee, I wish I said that so clearly <laughs> in my own talks. So um, well done. And uh, really, I think it stems back to a model where maybe deliberately or accidentally patients were sort of educated to think their body was some sort of structure that was failing. And if we think of a, a tendon that it would have a defect, like a hole in a road, for example, like a pothole. And there was this sense that the body was incapable of fixing the pothole. And so it needed to be, you know, fixed by either surgery or injecting PRP into a tendon or cortisone. You know, it wasn't the body didn't have this capacity for, for healing. I'm not sure exactly how that uh, happened because people can just watch the Olympics and they see that those people have amazing capacity for changing. They weren't so great at sport when you know, they were younger, but they've trained hard and the body adapted. Um, people have seen fractures repair. You know, we've got so many examples of how the body adapts to stimulus that it would seem strange that once a tendon was injured playing sport, for example, then it just couldn't recover. And so once you appreciate the body has amazing powers of adaptation, the key is to guide the stimulus to the appropriate body part and exercise is a good way to do that and I think the failure might have been in our courses to be honest uh, certainly my medical course there was zero training on uh, the fact that the body had regenerative capacity second to um, exercise and to physiotherapy exercises for example um, our course was that you know, drugs could work and that cells were designed to be receptor sites for drugs but we were not taught that exercise can stimulate tissue recovery through a couple of different pathways one is through a thing called a cytoskeleton cells have a little skeleton in them so once you think of that it's like okay that would make sense that if there's a little skeleton inside the cells that holds them in shape then a stimulus can go through that skeleton to the nucleus and they're also biochemical stimuli where um, a physical load on any cell not just a tenon cell but a cartilage cell or a muscle cell will send a stimulus to the nucleus and that will make the nucleus create um, new tissue that will repair the area so that's been very well known in basic sciences for really over 100 years but it's interesting that the course, you know, my health professional course, didn't uh, cover it. And I suspect a lot of listeners who are health professionals didn't get a course on mechanotransduction, mechanotherapy, mechanobiology. And then my last point there is the irony is that now mechanobiology has become a sexy topic in the last few years when they're trying to recreate parts of that pathway with a drug, with an injectable, with a biologics, you know, this so-called 21st century of medicine. And yet they're only recreating one tiny part of an effective pathway. And, of course, the part doesn't work. So I'll stop there initially, yeah. Jeff. Well, that's a, a great response there, Carmen. Uh, I just wanted to follow up. And, you know, as you, we think about this solution sitting right in front of us, in my mind, as you're talking, I'm just thinking about, you know, what BGSM has done really well is with a graphical display of information. And I'm always moved by, I believe, 
images, sound. We we can have data, and we can, but data will not on on its own does not change behavior. We know that. Yet multiple ways of seeing and hearing, coupled with trusted sources, can begin to change behavior. So my question is, I, I just. In my mind, I can see this almost, whether it be tendinopathy or, you know, um, hip pain or something where this infographic that really shows two, two pathways, a pathway that looks at, as you say, mechanical stimulus, loaded, uh, graded loads upon this tissue coupled with, you know, functional movements and improvement down this pathway and a timeline versus this other pathway, which often in, is in an invasive pathway with multiple side effects that are stimulating off of them. Never underestimate the power of the medical system to make you worse, I often say, because, you know, again, that we we often um, in sometimes well intended, sometimes nefarious, but we will go down that path. So I guess the question, as you look at your role as a journal editor, that and you see this journal growing into really a credible source to the public, have you guys thought about something like that? You've touched on communication directly to patients, and I think health professionals haven't done that so much in the public domain. I think we've tended to focus on the one-on-one conversations in the clinic. But I think we absolutely have to do more with patients. And interestingly, the drug companies have changed the legislation so that they're able to do that. So the capacity wasn't there, I guess, before before social media. Now with YouTube, Facebook, we just have these wonderful ways of reaching people. As you say, the challenge is for people to figure out what's trustworthy and hopefully the brand's will will help with that do you guys have a i mean you you have great graphics and is that part of your your mission to really be a educator to the to the public is that part of the bjsm mission i want to make the point that a lot of our content is free to the public and that was a challenge historically because journals were in libraries and were expensive obviously journals have costs as well so that it's impossible to make everything free but what we try to do is to give the essence as you say and and key artwork and key videos to the public so people can google mechanotherapy and bjsm say but even if you google mechanotherapy the wikipedia page will take you to our paper that as you pointed out is free and you have that image in your head of the the cell um, being stimulated by loading and I, i think it's accessible to everyone. Our YouTube videos um, had 6 million views, but they have been targeted to clinicians mainly, but we have had patients self-diagnose and self-treat from YouTube videos and make a comment down the bottom saying, this was great, I was able to make the diagnosis from this video, and then I went to a different YouTube video and treated it. So, I mean, that's a lighthearted comment in the sense that we're happy if that happens, but clearly people often need professional help and professional guidance but then the good health professionals empower people so it is a combination of um, the individual taking an attitude where they can fix themselves with the help of a professional and uh, I know that a lot of clinicians are using videos in their clinic now so we're speaking about making things more visible and more practical so clinicians are using apps and iPhones to video the exercises that the patient should be doing and showing the patient doing them themselves and giving that feedback so I think that's a great excitement about the modern world. I mean, we've been skeptical about some of the negative aspects, but the quality information for patients is much more accessible. And in the clinic, we can use iPhones and apps to help help them. So the motivated patient, I think, can get a lot more material effectively for free 
and free value added to their clinical appointment than they could historically. Karen, would you mind commenting just on some other specific areas of practice as we, you know, our population ages and we're seeing growth rates and in many invasive procedures. Um, what are your what are your thoughts and do you see a role in terms of exercise in that population? Well, two things come to mind and one relates to the power of videos because there's a terrific video if you Google Fidelity study, a study where interestingly they offered patients with knee pain and a suspected cartilage tear in the knee and proven MRI cartilage tear in the knee. The arthroscopy, which is the standard treatment for people who are getting better with that, versus a sham operation, which listeners might find surprising that uh, people would have an anaesthetic and uh, have a little cut put on their skin, but there wasn't any actual arthroscopy of of the meniscus, so the, the meniscus wasn't operated on. So it was really just an in and out procedure, but no action. And in this study, the group who had the traditional arthroscopy, and many listeners will have had that arthroscopy for knee pain, got better. But because they had the sham arm of the operation of the, of the research study, those people got dramatically better as well. So important finding was that there was no superior outcome in people who had the arthroscopy for you know, very classical symptoms of um, knee pain, clicking, locking, and uh, loss of range of motion compared to people who just had the arthroscope stuck in and removed. And then there was a subsequent study of exercise versus arthroscopy. And similarly, the exercise group actually did equally well on range of motion and mechanical things that you think they might struggle with. And of course, the exercise group had better knee strength. So two different studies showing that this mechanical treatment with a surgery was unnecessary. And when you think about it, coming back to mechanotransduction, if you're exercising your knee and you're extending it fully and you're loading it, then the body has that capacity to adapt even a cartilage and to remodel the meniscal cartilage tissue. When you understand that there is that capacity, it makes sense. Whereas if you think the body's just a concrete structure like a building, then obviously the body doesn't have that capacity. So that was an important study. And the other really important topic I'll get to is anterior cruciate ligament tears because they're so prevalent. There was a beautiful study in 2010 where they randomized folks at a high level. They were playing soccer at a competitive level, but not as full professionals um, equivalent to MLS or English Premier League, but one level down from that. They were playing competitive twisting turning sports and they randomized um, 60 odd players from each group into knee reconstruction or good quality physio with strength and balance and progressive um, retraining. And at two years, those groups had uh, no different outcomes. And at five years, those groups had no different outcomes. That's a Frobel study, Richard Frobel, a Swedish physiotherapist and PhD. Now, the surgeons have tried, many surgeons have tried to downplay that, saying that, um, sure, that's true, but when they're seeing a patient in the clinic, they say, you're a twisting, turning patient, you're a great athlete, and they pretend that in this individual case, you need the reconstruction because you're different. And uh, I'd recommend listeners who are in that situation to consider that situation and talk to primary care sports physicians, talk to experts, sports physiotherapists, um, folks who aren't invested in making money from knee reconstruction. And having said that, I've got terrific friends who are knee surgeons and surgeons. Those They agree with those data and with my interpretation here. So I'm not alone and I'm not 
devoid of surgeons who are saying that that many surgeons will say the literature has changed, the field has changed, and there's no rush for early knee reconstruction. You should have a trial of physiotherapy and exercise rehabilitation first. There's no indication for arthroscopy for meniscal surgery. You should try, and most people will do well with conservative with physio program there, exercise, range of motion and, and rehabilitation. And certainly if you're over 50, this idea of a washout for arthritis has been debunked consistently and is very, very rare indication for someone over 50 having an arthroscope for knee pathology. You know, as you were talking there, Kermit, got me thinking ACL reconstruction is, it's almost like what smoking was. And what I mean by that, when we had the, you know, the, the, the sleek, whether it be male or female actors and actresses that would smoke in the, in the, in the cool movies of the day, right? That was like, that's, was kind of the thing to do. And it's like our professional athletes, you know, blow their ACL out. They, they're reconstructed and it's like the thing to do. And it's almost a badge of honor for some of our younger high school and college athletes to, to have their knee reconstructed. I mean, maybe I'm too cynical, but it, it, that's kind of what uh, we've encountered. Actually, I'm glad you brought that up because Tiger Woods jumps to mind, as does Kobe Bryant. What do I mean when I say about these folks, and I'm not their doctor and I'm speaking from media reports, but Tiger Woods clearly has done very, very badly with his career since he had back surgery. Now, People could say that would have happened anyway, but the point was that he wasn't told that when he had back surgery. I'm, obviously, he wasn't there when he was told, but his blog tells you that he was excited about coming back to golf and thinking that he would be a good golfer, and he thought that having some disc surgery, which again, using marketing terms, which is what you talked about, the slick marketing was called microdiscectomy, you know, which is a label, but you could also say you know, slicing through your skin and all the structures in your back and getting to nerve structures and affecting it in a way that could potentially make it um, more vulnerable in the future. And there's no evidence that treating back pain surgically improves back pain. We know that surgical removal of disc material is pressing on a nerve and causing leg pain can change symptoms, but the randomised trials show that there's no evidence of surgery improving back pain in randomised trials. So then you end up having a second surgery and then a third surgery. You know, I appreciate that lawyers could be listening to this uh, podcast and I'm really clear that one would have to be sceptical that this surgery was in any way effective and critical people could make a case that this surgery may have harmed him compared to him having non-surgical treatment and that can't be answered of course because he's not able to be cloned and entered into a randomized trial but we have to be able to make that point it has to be a safe place for people to question management examples like that that we see in the media and look at it in the context of randomized trials and ask the question was that surgery a good idea did he have the potential bad outcomes explained to him fully and was he in a position to make an informed decision or was that a rush was that not wise in retrospect. And so they're all just respectful questions that are not, then that's me as an individual. And, um, you know, I'm being cautious in this part and you need to sort of keep this together on the tape because obviously lawyers can listen and uh, I'm very comfortable with those points with raising those questions. And then another example would be Kobe Bryant who had PRP for Achilles tendon rupture, if I'm not mistaken. 
um, and also um, PRP into the knee. And there's no evidence that this would be effective. And you know, Kobe Bryant's career didn't go well um, once he was in the surgical phase. So surgeons like to take credit when things go well in a young athlete where they repair a structure. It's not proven that these operations are effective. So as you say, there's a big media blitz pretending things are good, but there needs to be a balanced perspective. But of course, those of us in the health professions don't get the same sort of media attention as uh, as the stars when the journalism can be a bit one-sided, unfortunately. So, yeah, I appreciate the chance to comment on that. Indeed, because, it, you know, we like to see the, the, the successes and then the non-successes just fade away um, and you don't hear about them anymore. So there is this clear bias, confirmation bias towards, you know, if you do something, they get better. And it really harkens back just to the days of, we used to say if you had a really good post-operative, you know, rehab course, you did a lot better. And you look back at a lot of those surgeries, well, you know, they did a lot better, not because of the surgery and the rehab, just because there was mechanical <laughs> stimulus to that tissue, very focused, um, likely after, you know, the patient's very aware after something's been stuck in them there, there's increased awareness of that part of their body, and they're focused on getting that back. And, you know, how much was actually due to the surgery versus how much was due to the due to the exercise following and as you've clearly pointed out on these RCTs that are showing you know really the lack of um, benefit from things like arthroscopy in the older knee as well as ACL uh, injury and the ability to come back as a uh, from that through exercise and uh, rehabilitation alone well I'd like to Karen if you wouldn't mind switch gears a bit and talk I mean it's a huge problem no pun intended that you know when we look at the obesity epidemic uh, throughout our country and I'd say North America I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts I have some thoughts on just you know our food supply and and where it's it's at but would you mind commenting on that and and the concept of nutrition kind of the big picture yeah I'd love to because I think there are practical solutions for our listeners unfortunately the theme of industry confusing things um, is going to be consistent for this part of the podcast though because I think the food industry has deliberately sent messages out to confuse um, folks and I think the key message that folks need to take on board is that carbohydrate gets stored as fat and interestingly fat when you eat fat like uh, bacon or butter it doesn't get stored as fat so I think that's a paradox I get that that's not straightforward and and uh that's a, a gear change for some people. But if you start with the basis that carbohydrate gets stored as fat, then it actually all becomes incredibly simple from there. Let me tell you why. I think many people will realize that having a ton of sugar makes you fat. So I think that's a good starting place for them going, okay, yep, I can I understand that sugar makes, makes me fat. And why does sugar make you fat and why does sugar put fat in your liver, which is one of the big problems, fatty liver? Because when you eat sugar, let's make it simple, white sugar, five teaspoons in a cup of tea, just to make it obvious and simple. That's half the amount of sugar in a can of Coke. But anyway, let's stick with a simple example. Then your insulin goes up. So the hormone insulin goes up, and that's a storage hormone. It's a fat storage hormone. So you have the sugar in your, in your drink, and then that's telling your brain, okay, insulin goes up, and let's store this as fat. That's what insulin's job is. The other thing the insulin does is it sets the threshold for your body about what your weight, it's the weight control hormone. And Sarah Helberg has shown this very clearly. It's very well documented. Insulin is the weight control hormone. But that message hasn't been um, sent out because it would be counter to the goals of the food industry. Once you've had that sugar, the insulin goes up and you store that 
the sugar as fat and life goes on. Now what happens is as your insulin drops, it tells your brain that you're hungry and so then you feel like you need to eat more and then your insulin goes up again and your body sets this higher thermostat, as it were, this higher threshold for body weight. If you avoid carbohydrates, you eat proteins and fats, then the insulin doesn't go up so high. With fats, insulin virtually um, doesn't go up at all. And so that means your your thermostat for weight isn't stimulated to go up. It's 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 the weight regulator, the thing that adds weight, isn't being dialed up by the intake of carbohydrates. Many people understand that about sugar, but the other four products that they need to avoid because they spike your insulin are breads, pasta, um, grains, which is the breads, and rice. So they're the big categories of uh, carbohydrates. So we've been told, and the food pyramid told us, that you should have mainly you know, breads and pasta and rice and these healthy grains. And when they put healthy in front of something, it makes you wonder, right? We don't say, we say sunny Vancouver because we have to, because most days it's not sunny. <laughs> you, know? you never hear people say sunny Los Angeles, right? What was the last time you heard them say, you know, sunny Death Valley? It's like, no, it's always sunny. So why are they healthy grains all of a sudden? And is it my definition? Is it some academic argument? No, you check the grains and then your insulin spikes up. So things that spike your insulin are going to make you fatter and they're going to make you store things. And also they make you hungry. And once you go on a low carb, high fat diet, then you don't have the insulin spikes and you can actually go for eight, 10 hours without feeling hungry because you're actually fat burning during that time. So the irony, is that in gyms, you know, there's the fat burning program and everything. The best way to be fat burning is to avoid eating carbohydrate. Um, you know, I'm saying avoiding obsessively every gram, like you have vegetables and, uh, you get carbohydrate in milk and dairy products and things anyway, but you lower the carbohydrate from the massive amounts that were encouraged by the nutritionists and the food industry. And that link is not accidental. And so. We've been taught to have this healthy grain, and I did all this. So I'm speaking to someone who was doing this, eating healthy, quotation marks, cereals and breakfast and bread. And then by 11 o'clock, my insulin would be dropping back down, so I'd feel hungry, so I'd have to have a similar sort of carbohydrate lunch and then maybe afternoon tea and then dinner. So you're just being encouraged to eat all the time, So you, and your body is in storage mode because the insulin levels are high. So it's storing fat, storing fat, storing fat and then you feel hungry. It's storing carbohydrate as fat, so you're adding body weight. And I was 30 pounds heavier than I am now 10 years ago, so I could easily be 50 pounds heavier than I am now. By recognizing this problem, I changed my diet. I was hungry for two weeks. The first two weeks when you're making the change, you, your brain's telling you that you're dying, of course, because it's switching from fat, from, from this carbohydrate burning and the insulin dropping to fat burning. It doesn't like it at first. But then after two weeks, that stops happening. And then after a few months, I stopped waking up dreaming about cereal. And now when I see bread at a meal, it's not a big deal because it's just gone in my mind. But I used to be ravenous about that at the start of restaurant dinners and things. I'd eat all the bread and wouldn't let anyone else have any. So bottom line is that it's actually not that hard. Now, people say the industry likes to say it's complicated, that obesity is complicated and there's genetics and all that. It's like, sure, a very tiny percent of people have got genetic problems. But the industry deliberately trying to make it complicated because by saying it's complicated, then you don't act and you can block action. And my last point on that is that motor vehicle accidents are complicated as well. If you think of the cause of every motor vehicle accident, it's complicated. So then why don't we avoid having seatbelt laws? Why don't we avoid changing car bodies and things to make them safer? Why don't we avoid road changes to smooth curves and things? Because it's complicated. 
So that's exactly the point. And interestingly, that we can hit the big factors and make a difference to things like car accidents, but there's still going to be some deaths, but there are a lot more than there were. If the industry stopped deliberately buying people's opinions like professionals, and there's proof of that, that they bought doctors' opinions and Harvard doctors wrote in the New England Journal of Medicine, nutritionists have been bought to write things in favour of the message that the industry is trying to provide. Once they stop doing that, and then once the education system improves, we could make a massive difference to obesity quickly because we'd move to saying, okay, it's tough to give up sugars, it's an addiction, and then we can deal with it at that front. But before we get to that, we're still confusing people with the current messages. Karen, that's fantastic. I mean, I think it really all of these things sort of tie together under that banner of misinformation. I hope the listeners are really appreciating sort of the vigilance that one has to have these days when there are all these different media outlets. I mean, there's significant benefits to that. I mean, one example is us having this conversation here that we're going to be able to challenge these concepts and get them out there to the public. So I think there's some real competition, which I think is all that much more reason that our voices being in this sphere are so important and why I so appreciate your incredible honesty over the past 45 minutes and sort of lifting up the veil and saying, this is not all pure what's going on behind the curtain here. There's a lot of people that are jockeying for for position with a lot of financial interests. And I hope that the listeners start to appreciate, maybe get more discerning and track people and see, hey, what are the trends here in their communication? And are they willing to be challenged? And are they willing to accept different opinions? I know Tim can speak to so many authors in our field who only publish, you know, results that, that very much go in line with their existing paradigms. And so really, I just hope the listeners have heard what you've said, that there's a lot of folks trying to publish for a lot of different reasons and be scrupulous and be vigilant and track these people and see if their nature of their dialogue and the nature of their findings um, are reasonable or if they show an underlying agenda. I agree. Absolutely. We can be labeled as being sort of conspiracy theorists. And uh, the proof is in the fact that Coca-Cola paid for the journalists to attend a conference where they were told that physical activity could address obesity. Yeah, that's a fact. That's proven. You can find that conference um, sponsored by the University of Colorado. Coca-Cola paid for that conference. You can find that the Chave Save the Children's Fund in New York changed their position on the sugar tax for kids after they got $10 million from um, you know a company. Actually, I won't give the... I don't have the exact number in my head, but the proof is that they were given in the millions of dollars from a company. And then when they were asked about that later, they said it's unrelated. We just changed our priorities, but it's not related to the money. And the Children's Hospital in uh, Pittsburgh um, also changed their position on sugar tax after they got a building built by the industry. So these are reported in the New York Times. So people have to be aware that these it's the tip of the iceberg that's been discovered, let alone politicians being given money in ways that we're not aware of. But if people want to believe that no politician's ever been bought, that's fine, it's up to them. But the examples I'm given are proven examples of money changing hands and decisions changing, but the people saying, well, that's unrelated, which is okay, but we need to explain that those things are proven, unfortunately. Oh, Karen, that's great. That's very refreshing. And it's the exact kind of dialogue that we want to facilitate, you know, being willing to look at those examples, those proven examples in in saying that there is misinformation that's agenda driven. Because if we're ever going to move forward as a group, if we're ever going to embrace simpler, less invasive solutions, um, we have to be able to look at the information coming at us in a very discerning fashion. So, Karen, this has been an awesome conversation and really appreciate your time Um, and don't want to abuse that. So as we kind of wrap things up, can you remind the 
to uh, the listeners on how they can follow you and sort of engage in your content? I'd love to because we use the Twitter handle to guide people to many other places. So the at BJSM British Journal Sports Medicine, so at BJSM underscore BMJ, which is British Medical Journal. And my name's associated with that, Karim Khan. So I think people will find that on Twitter pretty easily if you Google Karim Khan on Twitter or um, BJSM on Twitter. Then we'll try and guide people. So it's like a signpost to, you know, and that's why one of the great things about Twitter, you can be guided to people. Yeah. And BJSM is pretty prominent on Google. Um, and these YouTube videos have some that are great for the public. The one on the arthroscopy, for example, is going on our site. So, um, yeah, and people can email and stalk these days. So I'm, I'd be happy to help out where I can. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much. It's been a wonderful conversation. Privilege to be on it uh, and keep up the great work. And we've, we've got a difficult battle because uh, Pepsi can spend $100 million promoting one Kendall Jenner ad, as you know, um, <laughs> and they can spend uh, 2 to $5 million estimated making one. So we all have to work together to share these messages in social media because we don't have the $100 million advertising spend that Pepsi has. Wonderful call, call to arms, fighting the good fight. Thanks again. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Wow, well, huge thanks to Professor Khan for joining us on the episode. What a great perspective that, that he brings and what a great uh, volume of information. You know, the past few years, we've seen a huge increase in this talk about the beneficial effects of loading and, and us moving towards a paradigm where we have to stress these tissues and rebuild and, and and really get to a point where we put significant load so we can see that adaptation. And I so appreciate Professor Khan's background because it, it sort of is, if you will, the science behind the sermon. You know, we're all out there preaching load, but mechanotransduction and, the, and these concepts are really the science that underpins why that is so beneficial in so many of our patients. So huge thanks um, for him taking the time to, to come on and chat with us. Please keep following us, www.ispinstitute.com, evidenceinmotion.com as well on the blog there. Uh, jump over to iTunes, leave a review if willing. Other than that, uh, keep on keeping on, and we will see you next time. Pain Reframed is brought to you by our sponsor, the International Spine and Pain Institute. Check out their transformative pain science programming at ispinstitute.com.